Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Steven Glicker, and in this week's special episode, I sit down and interview Ron Lundin, a developer at Paizo, and he has written some of the most iconic adventure path adventures throughout the years. In our interview, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about the brand new Against the Aeon Throne adventure. He wrote the first installment, The Reach of Empire. We discuss that quite a bit. We also discuss Return of the Rune Lords and The Tyrant's Grasp. The Return of the Rune Lords, Ron is actually in charge of that adventure path. And The Tyrant's Grasp, he wrote one of the adventures. And we discuss both of those in a fair amount of detail as well. Finally, we also discussed the very interesting way he got into the industry and why he gave up a lucrative career as a lawyer to work for Paizo and write adventures for a living instead. Once again, for those of you not familiar with Roll for Combat, welcome. We are an actual play podcast where we are currently going through the Dead Sons Adventure Path. If you're interested in that, you can start at episode one, or if you just want to jump right into the show, you can start at episode number 48, which was just last week, and we have a full recap of everything that happened in book one and book two of Dead Sons, and you can just jump right into the adventure and start at the beginning of book three. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy my interview with Ron. So this is Steve, and I'm sitting here with Ron Lundin, developer for Paizo, and we are going to be talking about many, many things, but he has written The Reach of Empire, the new Adventure Path volume, book one of Against the Aeon Throne, which is very exciting for many reasons. The main one is that we finally are out of Dead Suns, and we can play something new and see a new area of the Starfinder universe. And I read it, and we're going to talk about this awesome brand new adventure. But first, let's say hello to Ron. Ron, hello. Hello. Uh, very glad to be here speaking with you. Um, appreciate the introduction. Uh, I'm a developer at Paizo. Primarily, I work on the adventure paths for Starfinder or for Pathfinder. So, Starfinder is something that I dabble in as a freelancer, um, but uh, long experience with adventure paths. Yes. In fact, you. I'm looking at the list, and it's like you're Mr. Adventure Path. It looks like every single time they need an adventure path, are you like the first one or the second one they call? Because you have, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven adventure paths off the top of my head. That That is right. Um, and many of those, the last, I think, four or five of those are all right in a row. Um, and then my sort of my standing joke among my friends is I was writing for 
at least something for every adventure path I'll write in a row. And when they didn't have me write for uh, Return of the Rune Lords, my only option was to come to the company and be a developer so that I could work on that. And I have been. So wait, is this is this your goal? You're going to write in every single Pathfinder adventure path, at least one of the books? I don't, I don't know that that's expressly a goal, but my real love of writing is adventures. Um, there are some people that really sort of get a thrill from digging into the rules and doing new archetypes and new feats and really uh, unpacking everything that the rules have to offer. I am, I think, at a very fundamental level, a storyteller. Um, I like being uh, sort of, I like being the person who's crafting the stories that friends are telling each other around a gaming table. So we have many things we can talk about, but the first one I'll get into is how did you get into this? Because this is the type of thing that most people would kill to get even a small article or small item written and published by Paizo, let alone doing adventure path after adventure path after adventure path. What was your method of getting into this field? Well, it was uh, it was actually sort of knowing the right people. I think the uh, I have to give a lot of uh, thanks for where I'm at now to Mark Moreland here at Paizo. Um, back when he was involved with the uh, Pathfinder Society. I was doing a lot of Pathfinder Society work. I'd done a lot of writing for previous organized play campaigns, Living Greyhawk and the like. But I had gotten into the Pathfinder Society, wasn't quite sure how to start with writing there. And they came up with a uh, an open call uh, to submit for adventures. One of the things that I know publishers often like is when authors show sort of a, a familiarity with and a deep understanding of the worlds they're creating. So my submission was actually a sort of a spiritual follow-up to a scenario that I'd particularly enjoyed that uh, uh, that already existed. So I pitched that. Mark Moreland thought that sounded good, and then I knew this was sort of my chance, right? I would I would put something together, but I had to make sure it was very carefully done, very skillfully done. I don't I don't even remember how many drafts I went through, uh, knowing that this is the one that I had to sort of knock out of the park in order to uh, um, get him to pay more attention and give me more work. Um, So I worked hard on that, submitted it, and it worked. Uh, I did get more um, from him on the Pathfinder Society side. He moved into um, player companions and other soft cover roles. Um, And so I got to, he sort of brought me along knowing I was a reliable writer for those. And then at uh, some point, he'd recommended me, my name to James Jacobs as somebody who could be able to write for an adventure path. And so I remember one year, even though I lived in Chicago and getting to Gen Con in Indianapolis was very easy, there was one year I was not actually planning on going to Gen Con, but I got an email from Mark Moreland saying, hey, James Jacobs would like to meet with you if you're around at Gen Con. You know, when can he meet with you? And so I responded, well, Sunday, I'll be around Sunday. So I basically drove down from Chicago to Indianapolis just to meet with James Jacobs and then drive back again. Um, my uh, wife was very, very gracious in letting me out of our weekend plans long enough to do that. But that's what got me into writing for the Iron Gods Adventure Path. Uh, after that, it was more work um, getting myself sort of uh, known by a lot of the other developers for the uh, campaign setting work and uh, a little more organized play. And then uh, continuing to pester James Jacobs and ultimately Rob McCreary on more Adventure Path writing. It's worked. And uh, I mean, you'll you'll see a lot of the same names over and over in the adventure path because these are people who sort of know what it is Paizo's looking for, is reliable, timely in their turnovers, 
and I'm I'm really frankly honored to be among the uh, uh, you know the the ranks of some of those uh, great authors. So when you got to do the first one, which was the Choking Tower, which I will talk about in a second because we did the Choking Tower and um, we liked it quite a bit. But before I do that, can you tell me like what what does it entail to do an adventure path? Um, we're huge adventure path players. We started out with Age of Worms and have done nothing but adventure paths since. So that's what a good like 11, 12, almost years now of just doing adventure paths. And we do a little bit of society and a little bit of like little side adventures here and there. But our bread and butter is adventure paths. So how does this work? No one knows, you know, how the sausage is made. No one knows, like, are you given an outline? Are you given certain things you have to hit? Do you get a lot of freedom? Are you just given an outline and then you go crazy? Like what, what goes into writing an actual adventure path adventure? Well, let me, uh, let me tell you from the freelancer perspective, I know a little bit more sort of behind the curtain now that I'm here and, and deeply involved in the third adventure path I'm deeply involved with, uh, uh, which is the tyrant's grasp. But, uh, from an author perspective, what you'll get if you're uh, if you uh, agree to write an adventure path is you'll get an exceptionally lengthy adventure path outline. This is going to be a document that's maybe forty or fifty pages. It's huge, and what it does is it contains the overview of the adventure path, the canon appearances of any of the NPCs that are in the adventure path, sort of what what we what Paizo said about them that they want to make sure to emphasize, maybe some things that Paizo said about them that they want to de-emphasize, and then a timeline, uh, which is pulled from the big you know, master timeline you can find in a lot of our works, but with some specific adventure path-related things. So everybody knows, oh, this person was born 22 years ago, but this other person was born 40-something years ago. I mean, that might matter if you want to have these NPCs interact. But anyway, so an in-depth timeline, which usually spans a couple of pages, and then it's a breakdown of adventure by adventure, and you'll you have you you ought to read the whole thing because you need to know how to how your adventure fits in with all of the others in the outline. But the actual outline for your adventure is going to be about two pages long. It's going to start with some very critical dates when your uh, uh, outline has to be in your. Um, milestone, which is about half your word count, your maps, your final turnover. And those those dates are important enough to sort of write in pen on your calendar and sort of frame your, your writing around. And then it goes into a breakdown. You know, a typical adventure is going to have three or four parts to it, three or four chapters. Um, maybe you get a paragraph or two about each. Uh, at the end, we'll talk about who the key NPCs are. The outline will say sort of who the key NPCs are. Sometimes it'll be exceptionally specific. It'll be, it's got to be this person of this name, of this level, with these particular abilities. Um, and sometimes it's it's the rebel leader, make somebody up, and it probably shouldn't be an elf because there's already a lot of elves in this. I mean, it's something like that. Um, and then it'll close each chapter by saying, here's a, uh, a some of the supplemental articles we expect to see here, um, and some of the new monsters that either you can feel free to write or that we'd like to put into this particular uh, adventure path issue. So you'll see six of those. I mean, for against the Aeon Throne, we only saw three of those because it's only three issues long, but uh, you'll see one of those for each volume. And then at the end, we'll have some, uh, uh, a lot of standard guidance that people who've written for Paizo, frankly, anybody who's written for the industry 
has seen before about making sure you're on time and don't hide in any Easter eggs because uh, those can be problematic. Um, reach out to your developer if you've got any sort of issues or questions. I mean, that that's some fundamental guidance that even that shows up in in a lot of the writing that we have. Even if it's not, even if it's people who've done plenty of writing before, that's always good stuff to sort of skim over and remind yourself about. Um, that's what the actual assignment looks like. The first thing that you'll have to do sometime within the course of just a week or, or excuse me, two, two or three weeks, sometimes three or four weeks, is to put together a more expansive outline um, for the adventure. I have seen some people that will take the sort of the page and a half, two pages they've been given and turn that into a, you know, maybe a three page outline, kind of break down encounter by encounter. Well, they're going to go into this room and they're going to fight, you know, maybe, you know, some zombies in the first room and then some ghouls in the second room. I, I personally take the opportunity to get the outline back to frame my entire adventure. That's where most of the thinking about my adventure is going to be. You know, I go uh, very detailed encounter by encounter my outlines that I give back to uh, to my developer's dismay is sometimes six, seven, eight pages long. And uh, that, that becomes the real framework that I use. I like having that amount of information all right out right up front on the front end because as I as I write, I'm actually filling in, fleshing in a very good outline, which is the most comfortable way for me to write. Um, then I've got a milestone, which often comes in, uh, you know, about, about half the words and then the, uh, the final turnover. Often the final turnover is when you, uh, include the maps as well. I'm Paizo does some really pretty maps. We've got some great cartographers. The maps that I turn in are often horrid and amateurish. Um, I'm very pleased to see them turned into works of art. Um, but what I try to do is in addition to sort of a, a good, complete, colorful sketch on graph paper of what I want the map to look like. I'll make a photocopy of that and then just mark the heck out of it with a red pen saying, this is supposed to be rocks. These are supposed to be chairs. This should be a, a high-tech computer-looking terminal. This should be a computer-looking terminal that's broken in order to make sure the cartographer takes my uh, errant scribblings and turn, can turn them into something that means like what I think it means. Um, so all that gets turned over. Huge set of files that include not only the text of the adventure, maps, annotated maps, the files for all the NPCs that I've built either in Hero Lab or, in, or Excel, some, some fashion of, of showing how I, showing my math for all the NPCs I did. Usually it takes me either one huge Dropboxy dump or three or four other emails to sort of get all the files across. And then I uh, wait, wait patiently to see what the, uh, the final volume is going to look like. Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. I thought it was, I, I knew it was a lot of work, but until you outline it, I, you don't realize just how much work it is, including the maps, which I never really thought about. But I guess it makes sense that you you do everything, including the maps. Yeah, that's that's all part of the task. I, I, one of the things that I tell people is don't don't put the maps off. I mean, a, a map, a half page map, will take me about a day. I, and let me when I say a day, I mean sort of an evening of writing. You know, I write in the evenings. I try to get you know a thousand or so words a day out. Uh, a map will take at least one day and then annotating it well will take another day. So if I've got four maps, I want to make sure I'm at least setting aside uh, six to eight days of writing just to make sure those look great. So do you actually get to ever play your own adventures? Do you ever play test them or are you just going by feel at this point and <laughs> building it in your head and then hope hoping it works? 
Um, that that is a great question. The I do some playtesting in sort of a weird way. I don't do a lot of mechanical playtesting because the system sort of builds its numbers in a particular way. And if you're doing things at the right sort of challenge rating, at the right sort of level, that math ought to work out. There have been some specific combats where I don't know that it's going to play out. You know, I don't know whether the environment is going to throw everything off or not. So I'll, my, my friends have gotten kind of tired of me saying, hey, let's do a quick encounter for something I'm writing. I'm playing in, actually, I'm playing in Dead Sons as well in a home group. And my group was kind enough to uh, let me run them through the first third or so of an adventure that I'm writing because I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to go for an upcoming Starfinder adventure path. Um, so it was, that was kind of them. But when I say I, I, I playtest oddly, the thing I'm most concerned about is does the story make sense and do the players want to make decisions that go the way the adventure intends or do they want to sort of run off the rails? Knowing every player, every group of players is going to run off the rails. I want to at least foresee what I can. So what I've done on more than one occasion is just sit down with my friends in sort of like a storytelling mode, an expedited storytelling mode, where instead of actually pulling out minis and a map and dice, or even character sheets, frankly, to be like, all right, well, you're you're given this call to go to this place, and this person says, and then I'll read the read aloud text, and they'll be like, wait, 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 I'm, I'm not clear even on where we're supposed to go. I'm like, oh, well, all right, well, then I'll make that note. I'm like, all right, well, I need to be clearer. Then if they decide to sort of explore the first area and things go sort of as intended, and then they just don't see a good way to get to the next area or something like that, I know that I've got sort of a conceptual hole that I need to fill. So that kind of storytelling is how I do a lot of my playtesting to make sure that the, the the story sort of works. And I sometimes interject, you know, and this is the place where you fight sort of this, this you know, giant rogue zombie robot thing that is supposed to be sort of frightening. Oh, okay, well, eventually we beat it. And then, so that's how that sort of storytelling playtesting is the kind of playtesting I do the most. So interesting. So you kind of skip over the fights and then do all the role-playing storytelling elements like with your friends during a play test. Exactly, exactly. And that's, we, we've done some of those. I've got a, one of my most useful GM tools is a, is a six-sided die that says yes on three sides and no on three sides. I mean, it's my yes, no die. I use it for lots of things when I'm running the game as an aside. But we've, we've gotten some yes, no dice and done entire play tests where it's just yes, no dice, right? Oh, and then these ghouls attack you. Do you beat them? No. Oh, well, we, we have to run off. Where are we going to run and hide? You know, all right, well, is this, this person going to take us in? Roll the dice. Yes, they take us in. Okay, we rest, right? I mean, that's that's, that's a, the extent of the rules when we play sometimes is the yes, no dice. But it's the story I'm really trying to pressure test. It's actually a pretty good idea. I can get through an entire adventure path in like a couple of sessions if we just skip all those fights. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, maybe so. I have, I have actually considered whether or not there are adventure paths that can be compressed like that. I haven't. I, I haven't yet actually sort of put pen to paper on trying to get an adventure path feel down to the length of a single adventure. Well, maybe it can be done. I think it actually can. Back in the early one, the Thieves Guild adventure by Richard Pett, he has that one where they're doing the play. And there's not a ton. There's combat in there, but it's almost added on. Most of the adventure was role-playing talking and acting 
don't know if you ever read that one. Oh, I, I play, my wife actually ran that for our group, and it was fantastic. That particular play, the particular scene, The Six Trials of Lazarod, was fantastic. Exactly. That one's similar. I mean, you can almost feel like the combat was added on later. Like, it's it's almost like, oh, yeah, we need combat. Okay, here it is. But but that wasn't the main purpose of that adventure path. Like, that adventure, that that is a fantastic adventure. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So, talking about your adventure, The Choking Tower... So we ran Iron Gods, one of our absolute favorites of all time. And I told you this when I met you at PaizoCon last year. I don't know if you remember. We played that. And the Choking Tower is basically this tower that is pumping garbage into the air. And the heroes are sent by a benevolent creature that lives there to help fix the tower and get rid of all the smoke and, and make it like happy again. And they go into that tower, and that tower is just such a hellhole that by the end of that adventure, <laughs> by the end of that adventure, they were so annoyed by it that you could either fix it or blow it up. Okay, so here's a bit of a spoiler, but it's been a couple of years. I think I can spoil it. And they were so angry with that tower and all the craziness that was going on in there because it's not just the creatures but the tower itself i mean the whole thing is like this living creature they did not even bother looting the place they ended up setting the furnaces to self-destruct they left they went back to the cave where the uh, benevolent creature was and promptly watched the tower explode and that was the end of that adventure <laughs> that, that as long as they got what they needed out of the tower, that that sounds delightful. Otherwise, it's a lot of sifting through rubble thereafter. They they were so hated of that tower, they didn't even bother looting the place. I was like, oh, there's all this loot here. They're like, yeah, we don't care. We're blowing this place up, and we're never coming back. I was like, wow. Now that that is some role playing. They hated that place so much, and my guys live for loot. For them to give up loot to blow it up, that tells you something, because that, I think, has ever happened again and probably never will happen again. So there you go. <laughs> I was, uh, let, me, uh, let me mention, in addition to that, so there's a, uh, um, so the, the enemy in the choking tower um, can keep on rejuvenating is a, uh, um, without going into more spoilers than that. And so most parties sort of are designed to meet this rejuvenating villain at least a couple of times and to get more and more frustrated each time. That's part of the design. Which they did. Yeah, glad to hear. Um, when I did my writing for um, Ruins of Aslant, I was uh, asked to write Tower of the Drowned Dead, which has a uh, an underwater tower with a, a lich in it. And I thought to myself, am I getting pigeonholed as the undead wizard in a tower guy? And then my immediate follow-up thought is, man, that's not bad to be the undead wizard in a tower guy, right? How many people can say that? So it was actually kind of delightful to see sort of another go-round of that. And one of the things I took in that adventure is, from my experience in writing and hearing people talk about the choking tower, is... If somebody in the tower is sort of bugging you all the time, that's one way to tell the story. The other way to tell the story is everybody else in the tower knows about the guy, but nobody's seen him or knows where he is. And it kind of becomes a, well, where is this guy? You know, everybody talks about him. He's around all the time. What the, the heck's going on? Anyway, so there's a lot of ways of weirdness that can go. And I think I'm, I've been playing with a couple of different kinds. That's been fun. 
Yeah, the guy, I forgot about that. Yeah, he did keep showing up and appearing and disappearing, and it was driving them absolutely insane. They they hated that tower. They hated it. They blew it up. And to this date, that's one of their happiest memories of sitting there watching it explode. <laughs> oh, fun. Glad, glad I could be part of that. A few other quick things, because we are obviously here to talk about the Starfinder Adventure Path, because you did write The Reach of the Empire, and I will get to that, but I did want to talk a little bit more about your background, because you have one more very fascinating aspect, is that you were a successful lawyer and decided to give that up to work for Paizo. That is hardcore. What what did you do? What type of lawyer were you? I mean, what's this whole story? I can't believe you ended up... I mean kudos to you to following your dream but that is that's really amazing that uh that well your wife let you do that on top of that yeah absolutely she was actually uh really the uh um biggest supporter that i had in that i have uh i got my uh, uh jd from the uh, university of chicago which was great i went to work for a big firm downtown in chicago did that for six or seven years quite liked it focused on uh transactional law so mostly it's writing contracts and with a with a healthcare focus I uh, left that in order to work in-house for Walgreens. I worked in-house for Walgreens for several years, uh, another six or so, six or seven years or so, and that was that was that was really good. It was really fun. I had a fantastic team of people that worked for me. Um, I felt like I was doing kind of good, important work, but it wasn't really what I loved. I realized that the most exciting time of my day was leaving work so that I could go home, see my family, and then settle in and write. Um, I'd spend a lot of my time when I was at work looking forward to the writing I was going to do for the weekend. I thought there's going to be some way to sort of flip this, right? To be able to make writing the thing that I love the most, the thing that I do all the time and was uh, actually really, uh, really surprised when Paizo was looking for a developer. I submitted for that, talked to Adam Daigle about it. He was initially a little bit floored. He got back to me. He said, I know, I know that you're a lawyer, sort of full time. You know, I don't I don't know what you make, but I know what our developers make and we can't get anywhere near what a corporate attorney is going to make. And I said, look, it's not it's not about doing it for the money. Right. That's that's the kind of thing I've been very fortunate. That's going to kind of work itself out. You know, my my wife and I are committed to make it work at sort of whatever salary is following our dreams. So my wife supported me several times. I was before the move, I was deciding whether or not it was the right thing to do and second guessing myself. And she was right there to say, no, it's it's what you love. Do it. I've got uh, three kids ages 10, seven, and seven. The seven-year-olds have been great about the move. The 10-year-old really misses her uh, friends back in Chicago, but loves the place that we've landed out here more and more. So uh, uh, one of the things I think I'm showing them, I'd like to think I'm showing them, is how important it is to do what you love to to be happy. So that's what's landed me sort of this full-time position here. So is it everything you thought it would be, being there now full-time? Because I've seen that before. Like my wife, for example, works in magazine publishing and she worked for like 17 and some of these other big like Oprah and like, you know, some of these huge magazines, but to her and the end of the day, you know, it's, it's just a job. It's a job in magazine publishing, but it is a job. There's, you know, the sex appeal and sort of the fun aspect wears off after a while, but is it still as much fun as you thought it would be? Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, and I'll say that part of the reason it's as fun is because there's a lot of intellectual rigor that went into being an attorney that I, if I thought about it, maybe I thought I might miss, but I don't miss it because there's a, frankly, a lot of intellectual rigor here. 
working at a game company is not sitting around playing games all the time. I mean, we're actually people are dealing sort of with their own careers and professionalism. And you've, you've got to make sure that things, you know, sort of you get things right, that they look right, that you're, you know, pleasing your managers and so on. That part of the corporate environment, I never disliked. So it's neat to be able to still have that in an area where people are very professional and very love what they love very much what they do. And at the same time, I come home, I'm like, I got to write about Rexasha's all day long today. And that was neat. So right now you are working on, well, you're working on both. So you have the Starfinder adventure path, but you're working on some of the final Pathfinder adventure paths as well. That's right. The Starfinder stuff I'm working on is is freelance. That's out of the office hours at uh, at home on weekends. And like Pathfinder's my my day to day work. The Tyrant's Grasp Adventure Path for Pathfinder. So we also played that adventure path as well. The um, Karen Crown. So can you tell me even a smidge about the Tyrant's Grasp that's coming up? Um, yes. the uh, The real concern is that Tarbafon has figured out a way to get out of his imprisonment. And he can kill an awful lot of people doing it. Killing an awful lot of people is exactly what the PCs want to stop. So Carrion Crown was about a resurgence of the Whispering Tyrant and trying to prevent it. This one is a resurgence of the Whispering Tyrant that is going to cause an incredible amount of collateral damage. And that's what the PCs are going up against. They're trying to stop the damage that the Whispering Tyrant can cause. So it's slightly different focus than Carrying Crown. Although I played in Carrying Crown as well, and I loved it. So I'm keeping a lot of that thematically carrying through. I mean, the final adventure in Carrying Crown, where you're actually, you were just at the tower that the tyrant was held in. And the monsters in that were like level 17. They were very, very hard. You were fighting, you were fighting, I remember there was like mists that were killing people. Like just the weather could kill you. It was so nasty. So I can't even imagine... How do you start off as level one against Tarbafon? Like, how is that even possible? Or I imagine they slowly work you up to this. Well, no. I mean, if you started at level one against his forces, you just die right away. So that's actually how we start things in Tyrant's Grasp. You start out dead. PCs start out dead, and then you go work, work your way up from there. Okay. I guess there's uh, I guess you don't have to worry about XP and everything if you're dead. No, no, you absolutely do. It's actually pretty clever, I think, to uh, uh, to, to have a campaign kick off in the boneyard because the PCs have been killed by something, but they don't know what, and then have to find their way back, find out the what, and then put a stop to it. Wow, Ugh. I knew. See, I knew this was going to happen because since you're going from Pathfinder version one to Pathfinder version two. You, and I know Eric Mona, and I know because he wrote some of the craziest stuff for Age of Worms, which is still my favorite adventure path, that they were going to go for broke and go insane. And I knew these last two adventure paths were just going to like break every mold, and you guys were going to get to do every crazy thing you've ever wanted to do, and you've been holding in all these years. So I can only imagine how nuts these last two adventure paths are going to be. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it will, I mean it's, it's great to see them. The uh, um, very last of Return of the Rune Lords uh, is the longest adventure path adventure we've ever done. It's crazy time travel. It's just, it, it's, it's wonderful, frankly. <laughs> it's neat to see. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have enough time because that leads me to the Reach of the Empire. So we are up to book three of Dead Sons. And we, we, we love the Starfinder system as we've been playing 
you know, since I've been playing for 41 years, all of us have been playing since the 70s, you know, traditional D&D, and then we went to 3.5, and then went right into Pathfinder, and have played about half the adventure paths, not half, maybe a third, but we played a lot of them, and we just loved them. But, you know, we needed a break, which is actually why we did Iron Gods, because, you know, we wanted to just play with something new. And we loved the technology. We loved Iron Gods so much that when Starfinder was announced, we're like, we got to do it. And we are having the greatest time. But like anything, one year, <laughs> as opposed to six months, for one adventure path is a long, long time. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, and it's been, like I said, I'm playing in Dead Sons as well in a... Uh home group that's got uh you know somebody from paizo and then a couple of other friends i've made that's uh it's been a ton of fun i think we're in book four i think we're approaching the end of book four so we might be a little ahead of you i'll, I'll avoid spoilers on that one i guess from <laughs> yeah so yeah right we've started book three and i got the new reach of empire and just having a new adventure path having the green in there instead of the rust from dead suns and just having new enemies and obviously it looks like it's a lot more fine-tuned you can tell like you know there's just the nature of the beast that dead suns was written while you know starfinder was still being developed so it is a little rough around the edges in the first a couple adventures they still i think are excellent but you can tell that it was a little rough here and there but, you know, this one you can see, like, there's little things, like, it shows you how to level up your starships, which is great. Like, you know, in the event other adventure paths, it's like, oh, here's your starship. But, uh, yeah, you figure out how to level it up. But you have actual very clear path of how your starship can go from tier one to two to three and so on, which is really nice. But before we even get into that, why don't you give me the overall overview of what this adventure is about okay yeah I'd, I'd absolutely love to so this is this is this is the start of uh of something bigger right the uh aslanti star empire is this huge sort of unknowable force that's out there in the vast um but we're starting at the very beginning where where this is the first level adventure it's the introduction to the against the aeon throne adventure path and as as these things sometimes go, the the PCs being put up against the uh, Aslanti Star Empire happens kind of accidentally. The PCs start out on sort of a very routine sort of resupply voyage, only to find that something's gone terribly wrong at the place they were intended to resupply. It's been uh, taken over, occupied by forces of the Aslanti Star Empire, and there just isn't anybody to help this uh, remote colony except the PCs. So they uh, well, they go from a, let me say, it, to a sort of a routine delivery job to having to, to sort of spearhead a rebellion in a very distant and isolated place where there's no one to rely on except themselves and the friends they're able to make among the uh, oppressed members of this colony. Okay, so I'm going to use the amount of spoilers that you had in your outline when I talk about this. I will, I will not go past what you outlined, but now I at least have a few things I could talk about. So obviously you do, you actually do meet members of the Islanti Empire and they are really cool. <laughs> it's like, I, I do like bad guys and these guys are, for all intents and purposes, space Nazis in many, many ways. Like their command structure is very strict. They're super evil. Just the way their um, even their uniforms are set up, it's the really it's a fascinating 
development of how the Islanti Empire is even set up. And just reading that, I was having more fun just reading the command structure of the Islanti Empire. I do hope that that goes into a little bit more detail in the future adventures. And was that something like that was outlined before you started the adventure of like how the actual command structure works? Um, actually, no, that was something I kind of worked on as I went through the writing. If you crack open your alien archive, you'll see that the lowest level Aeon trooper is CR3, which is too tough for a first level adventure to come at the PCs in waves, right? It's just, it's just too, too tough a monster. So what I needed to have was some sort of, I needed to build the structure at its lower levels in order to have the right type of opponents for the PCs to be able to fight against in this adventure. And that, that actually sort of necessitated and then triggered sort of a much broader discussion about what goes on for the organization in the, in the two adventures that follow, the higher level adventures after that. Um, because I really needed something that was, that was, that was lower level. I needed the cadet sort of in order to, uh, to set up the appropriate villains for the adventure I had. Yeah. I will say whether you did it on purpose or by accident, that the command structure and the military structure in this is dead on. Like I'm a big fan of military history and I do know there's a lot of fans of our show that are in the military and just in general, there's a lot of people in the military play Pathfinder and Starfinder, which I'm sure you know. And you can, you can, whether you did it on purpose or accident, like it feels very realistic. It feels like an actual military body as you read through this. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I've got, uh, I, I don't have a deep military history background, but uh, as I say, I've I've you know seen seen a lot of the same movies and shows and read a lot of the same books that uh, are sort of the the oppressive uh, evil empire uh, and the scrappy rebels who are trying to uh, fight against them. So there's an awful lot of uh, sort of narrative history for me to draw from in that. So one thing that's funny about the Zlanti. And you got to tell me if this is true or not. So one of their characteristics is that they have widow's peaks in their hair, their hairline, and they're all human. And they look exactly and even are exactly like the augments from Star Trek because they're augmented humans. They're humans that are stronger, faster, more powerful. They're like, you know, Khan. And they have the Widow's Peak, which in Star Trek Enterprise, all the augments had Widow's Peaks. So someone's copying somebody there because there's there's no way that's a coincidence. (laughs) If it's a copy, it's one that goes way back because the members of the Aslanti Star Empire are from the Aslanti, the vanished race in Pathfinder, who have violet eyes and widow peaks, widow's peaks, and are sort of sort of humans first and only sort of uh, thinking. So it's actually a force that's carried through into the future from what is very much the past of the uh, Pathfinder game. Yeah, it's weird. Like even doing a little bit of research, even some of the names are similar because in Star Trek Enterprise they were called the Aslant instead of Aslanti. I was like, what's going? Somebody. Some writer from Star Trek is either copying Pathfinder and taking some crib notes here, or something's going on because there's a lot of similarities between them, which only makes it cooler because in my mind, it's like, oh, yeah, the augments, they're stronger, faster humans that are, you know, they're, they're literally augmented. And that's what these Lanties are. They're augmented humans that are faster, stronger, and believe they're like the absolute master of all races everywhere in the universe. 
Yeah, one of the things I really like about the Aslanti and their role in Starfinder is I think Starfinder has a tendency to lean more heavily on the tech and maybe ignore some of the things that magic can bring to the table. But the Aslanti Star Empire is all about fundamentally using magic, insisting that they're the masters of magic and that they've got all the magical ability um, in order to uh, to exemplify what they have. It's a, They're the kind of people who make technomancers sort of not only believable in their society, but sort of oppressive in their society. Yeah, you definitely get that feel of like the Romulan Empire. Like, you know, these guys, again, I'm not giving anything away. There's a lot of, oh, there's no negotiation. They just kill you. Like, they, they're they just evil. They just, they don't even want to bother talking to you. It's like, oh, are you Aslanti? No, then you die. And that's that. They're, it's, they're very oppressive. They're very evil. And it's it's kind of refreshing in a way. Who doesn't like to kill bad guys? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I think they've got, I really, ha- I, I really moved away from trying to, uh, humanize them in a way that made you wonder whether or not you ought to be rising up against this society. No, 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 no. I've got, I've got sort of a bad habit of humanizing uh, real, real villainous or evil creatures. I, I think that you know the occasional, you know, I, I don't know, you know, demon that kind of wants to do good, maybe to see how that goes, is something that is interesting as a trope. But with the Aslanti, I wanted to make sure no, these are the bad guys, and there's not a one of them that doesn't see people that aren't Aslanti as just worthy of little more than death once they've given what they can to the Aslanti star empire. That's, that's pretty across the board villainous. And I wanted to be able to emphasize that. Yes. And actually for the adventure itself, I like a few things. One, my favorite part is, man, you go right into the adventure. There's no, there's even the, even the society adventures have more of an introductory. This one's like, Okay, you start the adventure, boom, you are now fighting. It is like you jump right in. Is that because it's only three adventures instead of six? Or you just felt like, yeah, here's the backstory, here's a page of backstory, go. And I like that. I'm like that it starts off with a bang and just like goes from there. Yeah, well, what I wanted to make sure I was doing was building in the the backstory that you need as part of your character creation so you can jump right into the action. And so that's one of the things that this adventure has at the uh, the risk of seeming maybe a little bit spoiler in that regard. When you pick your character's theme as part of building a character, without realizing it, you've also decided how your character plugs into this adventure. And then it's just go from there. Yeah, that was actually something else. And so a lot of people have commented that there's no player guides for the Starfinder adventure paths. And a lot of people are upset about that. But again, in this one, they kind of put one in, or you did, without realizing it, is that based on your background, it will connect you to this adventure. And so it's a baby player's guide. And you know, if you wanted to, you can even do it as a player's guide if you tell everyone ahead of time, like, oh, here's how you're connected to the adventure based on your background. So if you're curious, you know, you can choose one and it's not the same, but it's, 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 I feel good enough. Like, you know, the adventure companions are very nice, but obviously it's a lot of work and it takes a long time to put them together. And I feel that this was enough. So again, it was like all these little things that were added to the adventure. The maps are much bigger. They're more detailed, which I guess we have you to thank for that. The overview of this planet 
and the people you're trying to liberate is really fleshed out. It was like a very nice, big, solid adventure from beginning to end, which, you know, sometimes you see that and sometimes you don't like, you know, for Dead Sons, it felt like you had to build the entire society and all the pack world. So there was a lot be going on there. But it's like, okay, well, this is the second one. You know what the pack worlds are like. You know what the universe is like. Here, let's go to this cool planet and just dive really deep into this planet. And you can have a lot of fun there. Yeah, I wanted to make the planet itself have sort of its own character as well. The, the fact that you've got a colony that's there that you're uh, trying to resupply. Colony itself is fairly recent. The planet itself, while not overtly ominous, right? The villains are the Aslanti Star Empire. The planet itself is sort of weird in its own way. It's got its own sort of obviously alien things going on on the planet itself. And that was sort of important for me to, to show that the colonists, even though they hadn't been there very long, had kind of gotten a little bit used to the planet's weirdness. And they can tell the PCs about it. And then being able to use the planet's weirdness and their sort of irritating creatures against the Aslanti as part of their uh, um, as part of their sort of guerrilla activities was was really exciting to me. Yeah, this one, it's funny because I'm very excited about Signal of Screams just because my favorite trope is sci-fi horror. And I also even like the concept of them starting off at level seven, which will be nice just because we've been playing low level Starfinder for a year. You know, they just hit level five. So it's something nice about, hey, they can start off. But I have to say, I read this and I'm like, oh, my God. And this whole like you going up against the bad guys, it has this very World War Two, you know, like you're a small town in occupied France going up against the Nazis. It's like this is like a dream. I love this stuff. I was like, I'm going to have to run this now. I don't I don't know when we'll find the time. But this thing is like a dream come true, especially because I have such a big background in military history and World War Two history that I can just swap in my mind. At least I'm swapping out. Oh, yeah. The forest planet is uh, France and these Atlantes are Nazis. And otherwise, everything else works pretty much. <laughs> that's a. Uh, that's 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 an interesting analogy, and I love that. One of the things that has that came up when I was writing the adventure that I realized could be a problem right away. And it's exactly the problem that you would have if you were French speaking and went into France and it was into a Nazi occupied village. You could speak in French to everybody that's in the village, but the Nazis, if they speak German, and you might not have any idea what they're even saying or, or how to even communicate with them or how to try to trick them because you just don't know their language. So I realized, frankly, far later than I should have in this adventure is that I had to drop in some sort of sidebar and guidance to say, hey, hey, look, maybe your players should think about learning the Aslanti language at some point here. I think that we're fortunate because Pathfinder and Starfinder are very generous when it comes to the ability to pick up new languages. A, a friend of mine in my, my home group in Chicago was a professional linguist, and that always drove him nuts how easily people can pick up languages in the game that they don't in real life. But, uh, but your, and your analogy works in, you know, on a lot of different ways, one of which is the language. So that's uh, good to hear. Yeah, no, I, I just that's the whole time when I was reading this, I was having like the the music from the Great Escape in my head, like the whole time. I was just like, I totally see it. I was like, this is great, and even just the build up and the, you know, the, even the way like the low level cadets maintain themselves versus the higher levels, and even the whole thing of how they have their and you and you allude to that, like they have their own issues 
here and there of like them, even though, yeah, they're evil, but they have these issues of what their life is like without giving away any spoilers, but you can see a little bit of their day-to-day lives and you could exploit that to sort of, you know, beat up on them. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So you packed a lot in a small space. I was kind of surprised. Well, thank you much. It's also a little bit trickier to do in Starfinder because the amount of pages and therefore the amount of words of the adventure is a little bit lower than a Pathfinder adventure path or in a, in a, you know, full uh, Pathfinder adventure. So trying to fit more story into less space is always, uh, always good to try to look for for uh, tricks that make that feel like a real complete story in a limited amount of words. I guess that's every writer everywhere's uh, uh, dilemma. So you did this one in your spare time. So let me get this straight. Like, so you were, you were a full-time lawyer and then you would write adventure paths in your spare time. And now you work for Paizo full-time and then you do Pathfinder during the day and then at night in your spare time, you write Starfinder adventures just, just for fun. That, that's exactly right. And uh, the nights that I'm not writing, I'm off playing. Uh, most we're, we're starting to get more of a group at home I've got here. So my wife, who is a great GM, great player, uh, can play with us as well in order to, uh, to build up the, the play group as well as the writing group as well as the, the working. I was just about to say that. It's like you must have the nicest, most understanding wife in the world. But then you told me that she's a GM. I'm like, okay, that makes more sense now. If she's a player too, then that makes more sense. Yeah, she gets. Uh, she gets. Yeah, she she gets to, a lot out of this as well. I I, I you're right. I, she is the most understanding and kind person in the world. Uh, but that that doesn't mean she's not also a great gamer. Uh, just about everything I write for freelance, I have her take a look at first. Um, she catches a lot of things even now after having done this for years. Um, where she's like, no, you you know, don't don't do it this way. This was confusing. Maybe go in this other. I mean, she's still finding great great things when she looks over my stuff. She's got a PhD in English, and so that's particularly helpful when I turn over my uh, product, the editors don't have as much to do on it. They're like, wow, your copy turns over really clean. I'm like, well, you can thank my wife with her PhD in English, looking everything over first. What about your kids? Have they started playing? Um, we have got my seven-year-olds. I got seven-year-old twins. They haven't much. My 10-year-old is breaking into it. We play a lot with my 10-year-old. We play the Pathfinder card game, which she loves. I, w- I did uh, pick up Monty Cook's No Thank You Evil, sort of the role-playing game designed for kids to play with my, uh, all three of my kids, including my seven-year-olds. I was a little dismayed when we're about uh, halfway through the the session, which is only a couple hours long, right? But halfway through the session, we've been kind of a give and take and telling a lot of story. And my seven-year-old daughter turns to me and says, Daddy, when are we going to start playing the game? I'm like, honey, we're playing. This is it. This is the game. <laughs> but uh, they're they're maybe another year or two, and then we'll work them in. My 10-year-old, I think I'm already getting her hooked. Uh, the seven-year-olds will take just another couple of years. Yeah, that's great. I played a little bit with my daughter. I just kind of actually just made this made a game. It was like it was like a Pathfinder-type game and just sort of made it up. But exactly, like, she just liked the whole concept. They actually liked the fighting a lot. That's what I found. Like, they liked the storytelling, but they seemed to love the fighting. Those kids, they like to get their aggression out. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it, it also feeds into sort of a structured type of game for them. They're like, this is, it's you versus them in a game, which they see in video games, which you'll see in, uh, you know, some of the, you know, some of the, the, some of the shows they watch, other narrative they get, they're like, oh, it's heroes versus villains. I see a lot of that. And let me now act that out. And then plus they also get to beat you up indirectly. Like, oh, we beat daddy's monsters. Yay. (laughs) <laughs> could could very well be part of it, yes. 
So we'll finish this up. But before that, I do want to mention that Ron and I met last year at PaizoCon, and we were on the same team for the PaizoCon trivia contest, which we had an absolutely fantastic team because everyone brought something different to the table. And I remember that. I felt like I didn't know nearly as much as you guys, but I still was able to answer a few questions here and there. And then we won. And then we somehow lost. Do you remember even what happened? We won, and they literally put the prizes into our hands before coming by and taking them away. <laughs> well, you know why? Because they were upset we bribed Thirsty for one of the answers. That was entirely permissible. It was permissible. He was asking for it right there in front of everybody. That's right. He said, if you give me a drink, I'll give you a hint. I don't even think he gave us the answer. I don't remember if it was the hint, but we did that. We gave him the drink. We bought him the drink. He gave us the answer, and then we won. That was the worst part. They actually gave us the prizes. They actually gave it to us. I forgot about that. And it was like $50 off, you know, Paizo. And I was like, this is great. We won. And then they came back and said, no, you didn't win. Let's do the tiebreaker. And then we lost the tiebreaker. And I will never, ever get over that. I'm, I'm still angry. Yeah, I, had, I I was I was you know de determined to bear the ire for that until my dying breath. But uh, now that I work just on the other side of a cubicle wall from John Compton, who is uh, uh, administrating the whole trivia contest, I can't I can't stay mad at him. Look, he's right there, and he's a great guy. And God, you know, I I still think about it from time to time, but it's water under the bridge for me. You know what? I had John on the show last week. And I didn't know he was in charge of it because if I knew, I would have brought that up. So in like six more months when I have him on the show again, I'm bringing this up because I, I can't believe like ah, ugh. we were so, it was such a good team. <laughs> I mean, you're right about that. There was no every single person that was on it. There were what five, maybe six, but every single person was responsible for at least one right answer that we got. We could we could not have done it without the group that we had. And that was that was great. We were a great team. I know that was an excellent team. And obviously I didn't know anyone beforehand. And I think most people were just thrown together, but it was like, I read some of the books and there was some like questions on like the number of diseases. And I remember I knew that one because I just read the book and, and then you guys knew the lore and like everyone knew something, everyone knew something from somewhere and we were crushing it. Uh, apparently we were crushing it. Uh, not, not quite, not just not quite hard enough. And uh, they decided to snatch a defeat from our jaws of victory. I know. I'm actually really angry. And then this year I didn't play. And then my friends, their team, who I was going to do it with because we were playing um, Pathfinder 2 instead, they won. So I was like, oh, again, I don't win. If I played with them, we would have easily won. They like crushed everyone. <laughs> maybe it's maybe maybe it's you. Did you think maybe it's you? <laughs> possible can't be me well ne next year next year maybe well you can't be part of a team now because you work for paizo that in fact not only can i not partake i help write the questions now that i work here so um i don't you know maybe from a thirsty perspective buy me a drink we'll see what uh what what you learn might be coming in the questions oh, well that's easy i have no problems with that although these guys uh the they're actually role for combat guys they they were they were destroying everyone. They I don't know, oh man. They know the lore really really well. Uh, I know how to play the game really well, and I know the rules. I'm very good with rules, but lore I'm not so great with. Yeah, I want to say this year it was it was Starship Combat Modifiers was the technical question that was like then this then that then what's this bonus and this penalty and so on. It was I mean I even seeing the answer sort of written out in front of me when it was circulating around the office, my eyes were glazing over, and I'm like Netsu did not not 
for me, this would not have been a question I'd have been able to even approach. Yeah, they actually mentioned that afterwards. They it was like, yeah, they added like eight modifiers and they just say what they are and then you have to do the math and come out with the final and they they said it to me and i was trying to do it in my head i couldn't quite do it in my head but they did get that one right well we'll, we'll see at it next year then and you know it sounds like they're a great group to uh to be running along with and uh to, you know, finally finally get to the uh the victory so again thanks ron for coming on the show i'm definitely looking forward to playing reach of the empire I'm looking forward to the Tyrant's Grasp. That one sounds, oh, man. I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading the last two Adventure Paths for Pathfinder because it sounds like you guys just threw out every rule in the book and almost blow up the planet. And it has been, it has been a lot of fun to do. I'm still uh, in the midst of developing the adventures themselves, but we've got a lot of great writers that are on that. Um, in, in a strange inversion, I will tell you, for the Reach of Empire, which I wrote, and Jason Keeley here in the office developed um, one of the Tyrant's Grasp adventures Jason Keeley wrote, and now I'm developing. So we uh, we, we switch back and forth quite a bit around here. Aha. Uh-huh. So you get your revenge on him. And since his adventures are longer, he's going to have to write more words so you can get more revenge on him. I do not have any doubt that Jason Keeley can work longer and harder. He's actually great <laughs> at what he does, both as a developer and a writer. I've got uh, nothing but high praise for him. Oh, yes. No, Jason and I are good friends. And uh, I just like to rip on him whenever possible because, you know, it's a New Yorker thing. We just have to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ron, for being on the show. All righty. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, everyone. Steve here. So thanks again to Ron for that great interview. Ron writes some great adventures, and I was always curious what went into actually writing these adventures, and now I know, and boy, that is a lot of work. I unfortunately did forget to ask him one question. He did write the final adventure of the Hell's Vengeance Adventure Path. It's called Hell Comes to West Crown, and I wanted to ask him if that title was influenced by the classic 80 movie Hell Comes to Frogtown with Roddy Rowdy Piper. I unfortunately forgot to ask him that, so I guess the next time I have on the show, I will find out. For those of you new to Roll for Combat, welcome. Do make sure you check out the podcast. Not only do we have an actual play podcast of Dead Sons, we also play several Starfinder Society adventures as well. We also have lots of interviews. Just last week, we talked to Paizo's John Compton. And the week before that, I had an interview with Stephen Radney McFarlane. And we've had interviews in the past with other people such as Thirsty Hillman, Jason Keeley, and Eric Mona himself. So do check out some of the past interviews as well. And for those of you actually interested in playing society games in general, do check out the Roll for Combat Discord channel. It's just discord.rollforcombat.com. We're an actual official lodge for Paizo, and we have both Pathfinder and Starfinder and Pathfinder 2 society games on there all the time. Do check it out. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and do look out for interviews in the near future. You've been listening to Roll for Combat, a Starfinder actual play podcast. If you have a question or comment for the show, please visit us at RollForCombat.com or drop us a line at contact at RollForCombat.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, and other social media platforms.
You've been listening to Roll for Combat. Until next week, always remember, being dead is no excuse for laying off adventuring. <laughs>